Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Manager. In this episode, you'll hear me speak with Joan Rosenhauer, the Executive Director of the Jesuit Refugee Service, JRS, USA. The Jesuit Refugee Service is an international Catholic organization with a mission to accompany, serve, and advocate on behalf of refugees and other forcibly displaced persons, that they may heal, learn, and determine their own future. Joan previously served as Executive Vice President of Catholic Relief Services, where she led the organization's outreach, marketing, and communications. And she spent 16 years working with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, where she most recently served as the Associate Director of the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development. In this episode, we discuss JRS's advocacy, changes to the U.S. refugee and asylum systems under the Biden administration, and how JRS adapted its programs during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's our conversation. So welcome, Joan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As many of our viewers and listeners at CMS are familiar with JRS and its work, but for those who may not be, could you just say a little bit about JRS's mission and the scope of the organization? Sure. Uh, Well, Jesuit Refugee Service is an international Catholic organization serving refugees and other forcibly displaced people. Um, Our mission is to accompany, serve, and advocate on behalf of refugees and other forcibly displaced people so that they can heal and learn and determine their own future. Um, We were founded by the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, in 1980 in response to the humanitarian crisis of the Vietnamese boat people uh, that was occurring at that time. Um, I'm sure uh, Father Pedro Rupe, who was the Superior General of the Jesuits at the time who founded us, would never have believed that 40 years later, we would be working in 56 countries and um, trying to meet the educational and health and social needs of roughly 800,000 displaced people. Um, We hire and serve people of all faith traditions or none. And uh, we work in detention centers and border settings and urban settings, refugee camps. And where we work, we live and work alongside the refugees, accompanying them on their journey. And so I want to highlight that um, we do serve a range of forcibly displaced people, refugees, internally displaced people, asylum seekers, other migrants. And uh, I should acknowledge that I often use the term refugee to capture all of that. It's not it's not a very um, technical way of using the term, but because it's in our name, I think I often use the term refugee. And I and I am referring to all of the people that we serve. And just to say a word about JRS uh, USA. Uh, We work with our global JRS network to provide support through funding and um, kind of oversight and monitoring and evaluations and other services. And um, we focus significant effort on mobilizing people in the U.S. and giving them an opportunity to join our mission and support forcibly displaced people around the world. But we do also serve uh, forcibly displaced people here in the U.S. We have one program that's called our detention chaplaincy program, and we ensure that people of all faiths have the opportunity to practice their religion. Um, We also provide pastoral care uh, to meet the needs of non-citizens detained by the Department of Homeland Security in five U.S. detention centers around the country. And then we're just starting a program 
in El Paso, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez uh, that will focus on mental health and psychosocial support for people who are uh, seeking asylum in the U.S. right now. Most of them are in Mexico under the migrant protection uh, protocols, uh, but they will be trying to, to come into the U.S. So we'll provide mental health and psychosocial services and also legal services. And then finally, we do a lot of advocacy on behalf of uh, displaced people at home and abroad, bringing their needs and priorities to Congress and to other U.S. government officials. And, and that includes organizing supporters of, around the country to raise awareness and advocate on behalf of refugees. Wow. So quite a lot. <laughs> and, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, back in November, um, I'm recalling a JRS event um, when President Biden committed to change the annual ceiling for refugee admissions to 125,000. And, you know, he's recently um, re reiterated that promise for fiscal year 2022. Um, and but you know, the those programs, they saw some pretty steep cuts and um, some of the resettlement agencies were, were damaged um, by those cuts under the Trump administration. So what do you what do you think it will take for those resettlement agencies to really scale up and to like meet that goal, which is a good goal to set, but you know, how do we how do we get there from where we are right now? Right. Well, um, you're raising a really good point that it is going to take a lot. I, I should be clear, JRS um, USA is not one of the resettlement agencies in the U.S., but we do work closely with them. And um, I think that, uh, uh, as you said, they have had to scale back because the numbers were cut so dramatically over the course of the Trump administration from uh, an average before that of 80 thousand uh, resettled refugees a year down to uh, the most recent cap that President Trump uh, provided for 2021 was 15,000. And um, so it is going to take some time for them to scale back up and be ready to provide the support to, to uh, get to a point of being able to resettle 125,000 refugees uh, in a given year in the U.S. But it's a, a wonderful direction for that to be taken. And I think the other thing we have to be aware of is that the pandemic does create uh, an added layer of complexity to that because we will have to make sure that there are public health protections in the process that protect both the refugees and the U.S. population. So testing availability, vaccines, all of that comes into question as long as the pandemic is, uh, is, is in our midst. Yeah. Could you say, just describe, you know, a couple of the things that the Biden administration has done so far to protect refugees? Um, I know there was a recent executive order. Um, there's been some action on the microprotection protocols. Could you describe a, a little bit what's going on right now? Sure. Um, well, uh, we're very pleased to see the direction and hope for a lot more as the weeks and months um, uh, unfold. Uh, it's important to remember, and I know your audience for the most part understands that that people who are seeking asylum in the U.S. are fleeing for their lives. They are they uh, are are making the case that they are uh, subject to persecution, to violence, that their lives are at risk. Um, what we've had is a system that has not allowed people to come into the United States. That's the migrant protection protocols. Or that's one dimension of it that has kept people in Mexico who are who are seeking asylum in the U.S. And um, the the uh, Biden administration has already suspended new enrollments uh, for the migrant protection protocols. 
but of course, that means that there is a great backlog of asylum cases, and we don't have the capacity to, in in as uh, um, speedy a manner as we would like, to to process those cases and things. Um, so we're really hoping for some investment in the capacity to take those cases and uh, and um, move them forward. Um, he's also reversed the travel ban uh, on Muslim majority countries uh, that has impacted so many refugees around the world and even kept many of them from uh, reuniting their families, uh, some of whom are in the U.S. and some of whom are not. Uh, and then we, we know that there are plans, There, are, we, we hope that they will carry out plans to take a lot of other steps there. Uh, is a lot of discussion of something called the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, which will try to kind of modernize the U.S. immigration system, um, uh, creating more safe and legal channels for people to uh, seek protection and, uh, and, uh, you know, making sure that there is a path to citizenship for current non-citizens, including dreamers and people here under temporary protective uh, 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 status. So, um, there are lots of uh, uh, policies that are in the works that we would definitely support. We also support um, providing additional funding in the Northern Triangle countries uh, to help address the reasons that people are fleeing. Uh, so I think there's a there's a whole package of programming that either the beginnings of which have been established and others are in the works that we would continue to support and encourage. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit about maybe how the work of JRS changes, like from administration to administration or as the political context changes. Obviously, the mission is the same. The goal is the same. But, um, you know, it's I mentioned earlier that President-elect Biden at the time participated in a JRS event. It's hard to imagine um, Trump doing something like that. Um, I just, could you say, I guess, yeah, how does your advocacy and your work change to, to meet the moment? Well, um, I would say that that happens in, in a number of different ways. As, as I've traveled around the world to our programming, I always meet people whose goal, whose dream is to uh, come to the United States. That's their hope. That's their dream. Um, and, um, it, it, it makes a difference that people now feel like there is more of a possibility. Now, the percentage of people who have fled their homes around the world who will actually be resettled in the United States, even if it goes up to 125,000, is very low. But there is some possibility that people can do that, and that, and that allows us to, to, to work with them in different ways around the world to, to see how that might become a possibility, and also looking at other opportunities for education and things like that. Here in the United States, um, we're definitely looking at ramping up our work at the border, at the U.S.-Mexico border, because we know that there will be a, a lot of people to be served. And as I said before, the programming that we're focusing on is in part legal services and in part um, mental health and psychosocial support, because everyone who flees their home, no matter what their age, has suffered you know, incredible trauma. And, and most people have heard the terrible stories that, of what people experience, especially women and children. Trying to come from the Northern Triangle countries to uh, the U.S.-Mexico border and seek asylum in the U.S., and so um, helping them to uh, come to terms with their trauma and try to to relieve some of that stress that they're going through is really critical for everything else that they would hope to do 
uh, as they go through the asylum process in the United States. And, uh, you know, um, the fact that there are so many possible policy changes means that we really want to focus on advocacy and support that and let members of Congress know that people in the United States support these policies that are more welcoming of migrants and um, uh, more supportive of the U.S. policy and global policy as it relates to asylum and providing safety and protection for people who are fleeing their homes. So um, we have always been doing a lot of advocacy. Usually it was, or for many of the, the Trump administration policies, we opposed the positions they were taken and that those were important advocacy efforts to undertake. But uh, now we see a lot of possibility for improvements in U.S. policy, and we definitely want to be involved in the advocacy there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have another question, and it's there's a bit of a lead-in, but I promise there's a question at the end. But, you know, CMS did a recent study um, about the resettlement U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, which surveyed refugees and also former refugees and also folks who work in the resettlement agencies um, and um, also some of the other um, support agencies. And one of the biggest um, challenges that the refugees themselves reported was that there was false or misunderstandings and misperceptions about refugees in the news and that there were false understandings or misperceptions about refugees in their community. Um, and you know, CMS has done a lot of research about um, the refugee resettlement program in the U.S. and really across the board, all nationalities, you know, refugees are very successful. They um, become U.S. citizens and homeowners and English speakers and, you know, they're very entrepreneurial. They, they start businesses and, um, you know, um, just, are, just are very successful. And the U.S. refugee resettlement program also has a lot of vetting and screening built into the process. Um, some of um, the most intense scrutiny of probably anyone coming into the United States. Um, and yet those like per misperceptions um, persist and they present this challenge for refugees as they're trying to integrate, um, trying to begin a new life. Um, could you say, you know, a bit about some of in some of the advocacy and other work that JRS does, like, how do you try to challenge those um, misconceptions about refugees? And, and how do you talk to folks who maybe are kind of not yet, there yet with their understanding? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for that study because it's um, very important. It creates a, a really important voice for refugees and um, helps all of us who um, want to work with them and to, and to support them. Um, and we couldn't agree more that they're telling their stories and helping people to understand uh, that they are uh, in, in you know, most cases, wonderful people who do amazing things. Now, like any other group, of course, there are some not so great people, but that's not particular to refugees, that's particular to human beings in any group. But one of the things that always strikes me when I travel around the world is that I meet people who have been through experiences that I, I couldn't imagine going through, and yet they are so hopeful and resilient, and they do form community, and they support each other, and they're just amazing, wonderful people. And I often think to myself, if I had been through the kind of threats uh, to, their, to my life, um, if I had been through the kind of struggle 
you know, trying to um, uh, travel uh, through d very difficult uh, circumstances. We've all seen the pictures of people in boats and all of that. If I had been through that, would I be able to be the kind of proactive, resilient, hopeful person that I'm meeting, you know, who are building lives for their families, who are doing what they can to make sure that their children have a decent education. So uh, I couldn't agree more that sharing those stories and helping the general public understand what wonderful people, the vast majority of refugees and displaced people are, is critical. And we do try to do that all the time. Uh, we, you know, use all of the kind of tools at our disposal, our website, social media, our mailings, just always seizing uh, opportunities to tell those stories. And, um, you know, I really hope that your listeners will be encouraged to uh, do everything they can to take those stories. We do work with, especially in the Jesuit community, with schools and parishes and universities and other institutions to try to get those uh, messages out. And I hope all of uh, the listeners will will play a role in that. We all have social media presence. We can all share those stories. And there are stories of refugees here in the United States. We have wonderful people that have been educated by JRS in their uh, original country of, of um, you know, kind of a, a settlement after they fled their homes and then were able to come to the U U.S. and maybe get an education or whatever. And they're just amazing people. And so we hope everybody will play a role in um, sharing those stories. And I, I want to lift up one way that we do that or have done that recently. We um, co-published a book called Dying to Live Stories of Refugees on the Road to Freedom. And uh, it, it tells the stories of a range of different refugees uh, and their experience in different phases of their, uh, uh, their, their pro the process that they went through, that they experienced. And um, it's in their own words. I mean, they, they you know, it's, it's the refugees speaking about themselves, telling their story in their own words. It's a terrific book. So I lift that up as an option for people to, to uh, learn more about how amazing refugees are. Thank you. Yeah, and changing gears a little bit, um, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, COVID-19, um, it's obviously affected all of our lives more than um, we could ever have conceived of almost a year ago. Um, but could you just say a little bit about some of the work um, of JRS International and how it's trying to adapt its programs um, to be safe, um, but to still support people um, despite this global pandemic. Right. Yes. Well, um, the, the um, initial uh, adjustment that we made in some cases is that we were not an emergency relief agency. Uh, we often provide programs like mental health and psychosocial support, lots of education programming, livelihood programming and things. But when people suddenly lose their you know, ability to support themselves completely, uh, and they are so restricted in what they can do and how they can try to go out and uh, and make a living, then we had to adjust our response to provide uh, emergency relief and distribute food, other emergency supplies, hygiene kits, things like that um, in many camps and even in urban areas. And most refugees are in urban areas, uh, as I'm sure many of your, your listeners know. But um, even in the urban areas, there's often limited access to hand washing uh, stations and things like that. And so throughout, we were setting up hand washing stations so that people, it, it's such a different experience that I try to explain to people in the U.S. Because when we're told, you know, you need to wear masks and you need to wash your hands, 
we buy masks and we wash our hands at our sinks and the many sinks that we have in our homes, right? People who are displaced can't do that. Uh, they can't buy masks and they often don't have places that are convenient for washing their hands. So we responded to all of that, as well as just raising awareness and educating people, setting up education um, uh, programs so that people understood about the virus and how they could protect themselves and the importance of masks and social distancing and all of those kinds of things. Um, but then in addition, we uh, had to adapt our education programs and our livelihoods programs, some of the vocational training that that we're doing and things um, so that, uh, you know, we just had to look for opportunities to use WhatsApp for, uh, you know, uh, classroom groups or even uh, using cell phones and WhatsApp and, and things for um, uh, mental health and psychosocial services so that people didn't kind of lose that support that they had been getting from our um, our, our staff and our, our, our uh, program uh, systems. Um, you know, we, we had teachers who were sending uh, short videos and voice recordings and things like that to try to keep classrooms, go classes going. But also there are a lot of places where that's not possible because people have very limited access to the internet. And so, um, we, you know, in some cases used camp radios, uh, and sometimes that was to teach. Maybe there'd be a packet, a learning packet, and then some time on the camp radio where students could, could listen, but also to train parents so that they knew how to help their, it's the same thing that we're experiencing here where parents are learning to be the teachers and support, except they don't have screens, they don't have Wi-Fi, uh, and so they have camp radios and printed learning packets that would be distributed. So there's a lot of that that we're um, that we're uh, addressing. One of the one of the additional things I'd want to lift up is is a, a question that we're um, focusing on right now, which has to do with vaccine equity. Um, as I'm sure your many of your listeners know, more than 80% of refugees are in developing countries, and what we know about the vaccines and the treatments for uh, COVID is that. Uh, the wealthy countries have the capacity to purchase lots of the supply, leaving the poorest countries at the back of the line uh, when it comes to getting vaccines and treatments and stuff. And then within those poorest countries, displaced people are at the back of the back of the line. And so we have to really call attention to the fact that, you know, we truly are all in this together and that people who are uh, displaced people who do not have the resources, who don't have access to health care regularly and things, they have to be part of our plan to get the vaccines out in a fair and equitable way that takes into uh, consideration their vulnerabilities. They can't just be at the end of the line. The people who are at high risk within the uh, displaced community also have to be given serious uh, consideration. And there are some countries that have already said only their citizens are going to be getting the vaccines. And it's something we all have to to work at to make sure that the most vulnerable people in the world are not left out of, of the vaccine process until the very end when the costs have, have been so high on that community. I wonder too, if you could share a story maybe about an individual or a family who JRS has supported and um, what what those services meant for them and, and their life. Sure, um, a couple of things come to mind. So um, speaking of the of the masks and, and COVID and things, I thought it, it was touching when one of my colleagues uh, who works in JRS India was telling the story of a camp there where we had been training people to be seamstresses and tailors and things like that. And when the pandemic broke out and they learned that masks were essential for everyone, 
they came to our office and said, if you can provide the material, we will sew the masks and make sure that the refugees in the camp have the masks. But they also said, we want even more material than that because we want to make sure we're providing masks for the people in the um, uh, host community, the community surrounding the camp to make sure that everybody is protected. And they just said, we know we're all in this together and we want to make sure we help everybody, which struck me when I heard that as like more insightful than sadly a lot of people about this pandemic and understanding that we're all in this together and that we all need to protect each other wearing masks and, and uh, following the, the protocols. So that was one story um, that came to, to mind. Um, I guess another one is that, um, uh, well, let me let me back up and say that I'm, I imagine many people who are, are listening uh, recall when the world was focused on the genocide in Darfur in uh, Western Sudan. Um, and, and I remember at that time, this was like 15 or 17 years ago or something, but for people who do remember at that time, we were all horrified and it hadn't been very long since the genocide in Rwanda. And we were all saying, no, this cannot be happening again. You know, and the world was focused. It was on our news every night and the world was focused on it. And um, what what uh, is often surprising to people that I speak to and I, and I tell the story is that the, the world was paying attention then, but those folks who fled Sudan are still living in camps, in refugee camps in Eastern Chad, and the world has forgotten them for the most part. But they're still there trying to build their lives. And it's a real struggle there. It's a very, when I was there, I remember like the typical temperature was 112 degrees and it's a very remote area. There are very few resources, but we are trying to provide education. And, um, and uh, there again, one of those experiences of just remarkable, People. One young woman in particular who um, had gotten married young and was starting a family already. She was in her early 20s, but she and her husband agreed that she should finish her education so that she could become a teacher and finish her education, meaning get, go, get through high school so that she could become an early childhood educator or a, a very low elementary educator. Um, and so uh, the only way she could do that is if she had childcare. And one of the things that JRS was setting up at that time was a childcare center. And because she was able to do that, she was she could bring her baby at the breaks in the class every day. She could go and, and nurse her baby and continue with her education. And um, that young couple then uh, planned to have, because so her husband had started up a little kind of convenience store cart uh, to try to support the family and make a little money and things. But the plan was that once she got her education and became a teacher, then it would be his turn to finish uh, going through high school and things. So it's just an example of how resilient and remarkable and determined uh, people are and committed to building a life for their children and their families. And, um, and, and in that particular case, there was also a teacher who also had a new baby and she was able to, to take advantage of the daycare center. And so um, just, just the ways that people um, commit to building a life for themselves, uh, getting their education, supporting their families, uh, and, and, and how just a little bit of help with setting up a daycare center can make all the difference in whether they're able to do that. Those are fantastic stories. And um, I think we can all learn a lot from, from them. And, you know, um, especially the message of just being kind of, we're all in this together with COVID. I, I hope, I hope that's a, a takeaway for people. Um, it's a takeaway for me. Um, 
and we can learn so much, so much from these folks. Um, I wonder if you can just maybe before we go, just tell us a little bit about um, how people could become involved with JRS if, if they'd like to, um, you know, get involved in some way. And also, you know, just generally, what, what do you think folks can do to support refugees? Well, um, the first thing I'd go to is something we've already talked about, which is um, share the stories, use your means of communication, social media, face, you know, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you are um, involved in, even, you know, the Thanksgiving table, wherever you are, where you can share the story of refugees. And we have lots of stories of just remarkable, amazing people on our website at jrsusa.org. And uh, so, so help share those stories, because as we've said, and as the, the CMS and RCUSA study showed, uh, getting those stories out is critical. Um, we do have a simulation where a group, if you're involved in some kind of group uh, in a parish or a school or your community or whatever, can um, it doesn't really come close to what refugees go through, but it gives us a little bit of a taste of what refugees go through. And we have adapted it some for a virtual experience for a group through Zoom. So um, that's another thing that people can do to learn more about the experience of refugees. Um, we do have also for groups in on college campuses and in schools and in, in parishes and in other community groups or uh, religious communities or whatever, we have something called the JRS Refugee Action Team with lots of resources to help form a group that is going to mobilize the rest of your community at key moments in different ways uh, to, to support refugees um, you know, over a period of, of uh, weeks and months. Um, we have another uh, program called Any Refugee, which is a lot of fun. It's a way that you can write to a refugee and it's it's not setting up a uh, pen pal relationship, but it you what you do is you write a little note to a refugee on a postcard or whatever, you send it and people often do this in groups, uh, you know, at a holiday, a family holiday, or in, you know, again, at, the, at school or wherever. Um, and, they, and then send the little uh, stack of, of postcards to JRS USA in our Washington office. And we bring them with us when we travel and we give them to people. And I've done this and it, it's so remarkable. First of all, refugees are thrilled to find out that there are people in the US who are actually thinking about them and writing to them. I mean, they, especially in recent years, have kind of gotten the impression that the US isn't very you know, supportive of refugees. And so, getting some message that we there are a lot of people in the U.S. who really have a heart for people who have suffered as they have and, and want to support them. And then secondly, most refugees, at, you know, once they get to a certain point in their education, they are trying to learn English. And these cards go around a class. If you give it to a class, everybody wants to read every uh, card because it's a way to practice their English and kind of read it in cursive and all of those kind of things. So, um, so that's another thing that people can do. They can, can write to any refugee. And then um, a key thing that I want to lift up is um, uh, advocacy. Uh, I, I mentioned a number of the things that are the policies that are uh, coming up, but there are also some opportunities to weigh in on policies related to international assistance, which will be critical because most refugees are in developing countries. And so making sure that UNHCR is supported by the US, by the US and making sure that foreign assistance is provided uh, for the support for refugees, including assistance for education, um, both you know bilateral between the U.S. and a and a and a country uh, uh, in particular, 
or um, multilateral education programs like Education Cannot Wait that uh, provides like 40% of the uh, education support for refugees in crisis situation. So there's lots of important advocacy coming up and we're having a virtual advocacy day on April 15th where people all over the country will be setting up virtual meetings with their members of Congress and their staffs. So I hope you'll come to our website and, and sign up and get involved and, and set up a meeting with your member of Congress. And then um, I'll just look up one other thing that um, as we head toward Lent for people who are, are um, uh, Christian, we have a Lenten program that we're calling um, 40 Minutes for Refugees, and we're asking people to spend 10 minutes a day during the 40 days of Lent, uh, supporting and providing um, uh, various kinds of support. It could be prayer, it could be sharing the story, it could be um, uh, uh, doing some advocacy. Uh, there are a variety of resources to help people for 10 minutes every day during Lent as a part of kind of a Lenten observance. So I hope people who uh, are, are, are looking for uh, a, a way to, to uh, engage their faith in Lent, uh, will come to our website and look for that. Okay. Thank you so much, Joan. I really appreciate your time today. Okay. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about the Jesuit Refugee Service, please visit jrsusa.org. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Danny Duberstein and The Music Case. For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.